Hey folks, and welcome to this week's podcast. It's Michael Shelley here, and our guest today is David Kirschenbaum. He has been on my radar since I was a teenager and bought the first Joe Jackson record, Look Sharp, which he produced. It was so fresh and interesting sounding, and I've sort of kept tabs on him since then. He's had an amazing career as a producer and a record company executive. And here we are years later, and the light bulb went off when my daughter was doing her homework listening to this very same album this week. She's the same age I was when I bought the record, and I thought, oh, what is this guy up to? Is he still around? And it turns out he's still around, he's still working, he's still passionate about music, and he has great memory, great recall, and uh, super nice guy, great attitude, uh, and still enthusiastic, and uh, really enjoyed our chat. One thing I did not know about him was that he was a artist before he was a producer out of Springfield, Missouri. He made 345s. I play a few of the sides in the show. Uh, the rest you can find on the internet. If you want to hear the archive of the whole show, it's at wfmu.org slash Michael. And that makes me want to remind you that March 6th, our yearly fundraiser starts. If you click on the banner at the top of wfmu.org slash Michael, it's a good time to donate. And in exchange for your generous donation, we like to send out thank you gifts like t-shirts, sweatshirts, bucket hats, stickers. There's a 45 RPM adapter this year, Uh, all kinds of stuff. You can see it uh, online when you pledge wfmu.org slash Michael, and then click on the banner at the top of the page. Of course, all the archives of all my shows are on that same page. They're yours to listen to for free anytime. So here it is, me and David Kirschenbaum. Just super nice guy, super interesting. Of course, I had a million more questions for him as soon as the interview was done, so maybe for another day. Who knows? Uh, I hope you enjoy this, and once again, uh, stay in touch. Talk to you soon. So, folks, there is David and the boys next door, Land of Love. David Kirschenbaum joins us on the phone. Good morning. How are you? Well, good morning, Michael. Uh, nice to talk to you. Nice to meet you. When is the last time you listened to that record, Land of Love? Because to me, that's a number one hit record. Well, you know, some of the early records, I've successfully bought up all the copies, I hope, on eBay. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but every once in a while, one turns up. It was an interesting uh, period in my life because I was... From a very young age, I wanted to be in the music business. Uh, I hadn't yet decided uh, that my ears were better than my voice, so I was still recording. And I think, if I remember correctly, those songs, that and another one called White Velvet Cat, were written by Wayne Carson Thompson, who was a friend in Springfield where I grew up. And he had written the letter for the box tops and a number of other songs. And I had come out to California and through someone at the college that I was graduating, met uh, a manager who introduced me to Mike Kerb. And that's how all of that came down. So I was an actual artist before I was a producer. Yeah, I know. I think not everybody knows that about you. To me, that I think that track is 1965. It's a minute and 50 seconds of fun, and like you said, you know, uh, uh, I think one of the, one of the sides of that record you you wrote and one you wrote uh, one Wayne wrote and one you co-wrote with Wayne. So tell me about the scene in Springfield, Missouri. Let's start there. What kind of music were you listening to growing up? And then as you were a teen and and started to make music, what was you know what were the venues like? What was the opportunity to play? live? 
Well, well, first of all, having a band like I had was very unusual. And luckily, my parents were just amazing. They they let me band practice in the living room and drive everybody crazy. Um, and I, I think getting in a band was a reaction to the to the fact that uh, I was trying to gain popularity in, in, in those days in school, and I was too little to play football. I tried, but I got knocked around, so I thought, well, maybe music is the answer. And uh, I started bands. There, there weren't a lot of venues. What, what we normally played were sorority and fraternity parties, and uh, I think we went to Lake of the Ozarks a couple of times and played at a place called the Old Still. But there weren't, there weren't a lot of venues in those days, and the music was basically what you heard on Top 40. I, I remember vividly where I was and what I was doing when I heard the Beatles the first time. You know, I want to hold your hand. I went, oh, my God, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard. But there wasn't AOR radio. You know, there wasn't all the streaming, certainly, that uh, has all the possibilities. So we were fed basically what the hits were on the local radio station. So, so would you guys play, you know, five hours of covers, or were you sneaking originals in? It was pretty much covers, pretty much covers. Weren't really doing that many originals and and, uh, had a couple of different band configurations. But later we started traveling and we did some fairs, you know, and maybe some uh, little residencies at some corner bars around uh, the three or four state area. But it was an early time for custom music like that. And like I say, there were probably two or three bands in the whole area. And, of course, Springfield was... Mainly, uh, it was a different kind of uh, economy. It wasn't known for entertainment or music, for sure. Uh, it's such an interesting time in music, and the, like you said, the Beatles kind of exploding and, and making a lot of people run out and start bands, and it seems like you were kind of slightly uh, ahead of the curve there. You would go on to do so much at, at the age of 17 or 18. Did you know such a thing as an A&R guy existed? Not really A&R. What had happened, I was uh, kind of friendly with the placement counselor at, at the college, uh, Drury College, where I attended in, in Springfield, now Drury University. And he had a friend out here that was a big manager, a guy that, had, you know, kind of at the end of his career, but still had a lot of contacts and so forth. So he introduced me to him and I was able to come out and actually through him and my uncle, who was uh, an executive uh, in what was called B'nai Breath, the Jewish men's organization, who knew people in the music business as well, go around and get some uh, interviews and play some things and, and try to get into what was then called A&R. But in those days, early on, all I knew is that from a very young age, I wanted to make music somehow. I wanted to be in the music business. And it looked like it would be radio promotion. That would be the area that you could get into at that particular time. And I couldn't believe that it would be possible to work for one of those labels. As a side note, when you ask about Springfield earlier, it was known for country music. And there was a, a network music show called Country Music Jubilee that came from Springfield probably fifty, sixty into the 60s. And all the country stars came through. You know, I can't name them all by list, but gosh, there was everyone you could think of. But anyway, the publisher that had Wayne Carson Thompson was a friend of the family, and he would take me to Nashville. And I was 13 years old, 14 years old, met Chet Atkins. He was really friends with Chet Atkins. We sat in the studio uh, at RCA in Nashville, and I would just salivate watching what was going on. I just couldn't believe that this was all, uh, you know, possible and that I could experience it. And later, what was interesting is my first job was at RCA 
and I ended up working with Chet Atkins on an Everly Brothers album, co-producing it with him in Nashville. And of course, that was just the height of everything because I was very young. It was right when I was getting started. And it was kind of ironic that I ended up at RCA and ended up back in Nashville with Chet Atkins. But early on, I guess my first experience with recording was with a wire recorder that uh, a doctor friend of the family had, and I would sit there and try to make music on this wire recorder, which was obviously horrible quality, but (laughs) it was a lot of fun. And I would put a speaker outside my bedroom window, and the neighborhood kids would come over, and I'd play 45s like a radio show. And I just always was interested in it. I always wanted to do it. And, of course, the possibility of doing it from Springfield, Missouri, you know, uh, with no basic industry around was almost next to none. I mean, you know, it was just a miracle that I was introduced to the right people and I got a chance to uh, to actually do this. Yeah, I agree. It's an amazing story. So you make a couple of 45s with David and the boys next door. Uh, it's just amazing that those came out and that you and Wayne Carson Thompson come out of that scene. And then you make this record, uh, White Velvet Cat, which comes out on Capitol in 1968. It's a little more psychedelic. There's a string arrangement on it. It's a little more kooky. Yeah, yeah I could definitely see that that could have, with a little luck, that could have been a hit and your path would have gone in a, in a different direction. So how do you transition from I'm going to be an artist to I'm going to be a producer? Or did you know, were you already looking in 1968? No, I was still trying at that particular point. I was still trying to be an artist and I did everything I could think of. You know, I, luckily we had the means that I could travel and I went to Dallas and met with a, a promotion guy named Merlin Littlefield who later became uh, a manager of my first signing at RCA. But I would go to different places and we'd try to get the record started and we'd get some sales, but it never clicked in. It just didn't work. So this is when I was at the end of uh, college. And Vietnam War was raging, and I was able, through a cousin, to get in the National Guard in Illinois. So I traveled to Illinois. I have to move there. And uh, I worked for an advertising agency, and I got to be friendly with the owner of the advertising agency. And I said, look, you know, why are we paying all this money going outside to do all the recordings and the ads? Why don't we put a studio in that we can actually use to do this ad production, which he agreed, and we did. And I would do the ads in the daytime, and then at night, you know, I started doing music. And that's how I really started actually producing, doing this in this ad studio. And ultimately, this led to me meeting some of the area musicians and so forth. And all of a sudden, I just realized that this is what I really loved, and this is what I wanted to do. And then, and that's what led me to California the second time, to shop a master that the band was allowing me to shop, and I could be producer, and I would take it around to all the different labels. And uh, I actually had some interest in that. But in those days, there were staff producers. And so I went to Columbia, which is CBS, and I went to RCA. And I had just enough money to last a week. And at the end of the week, I had to make a decision. But thankfully, there were two companies. And I don't know if you remember, but around that time, the big earthquake hit in California, and Columbia Records ceiling caved in. And RCA was there. So that's how I made my first decision. And that's where I landed my first job. Wow. Uh, so they offered you a job as staff producer. What was the, the title? Yes. Yeah. A&R staff producer. Just to clarify. So you walked in with one master. You were, I don't know, 20 years old or something. And they said, yeah. come have a desk. Yeah. I mean, it was, a, you know, A&R was, it was totally different in those days. And, and luckily, again, it was just luck. The new division vice president, a guy named Mort Hoffman, uh, had 
come to California, and I was able to meet with him. The the guys that were in A&R kind of liked this band that I had, and uh, I was able to meet with him, and he was looking to restructure the company. And he wasn't a creative guy. He was a great, you know, administrator. But, you know, everybody seemed to like this record, and here I was, and I was young, and I was able to express myself and not, you know, look like it was completely drugged out. And he uh, he said, look, come back to New York. We'll make a deal. He said, you can either be in New York, back to L.A., or we're really beefing up our Chicago operations. So uh, another funny story is that I... I had just enough money, as I said, to stay a week, but somehow I was able to get to New York with no money and checked into this hotel and went to see Mort when I was supposed to the next day. And he had been called out of the country. He wasn't there. And no one at RCA knew that I was supposed to be there. And so I went downstairs and they stopped me at security and they said, look, Mort Hoffman is not here. We don't know who you are and you can't come upstairs. So I was, you know, a little bit taken aback and kind of seemed kind of strange, but okay. So I went back and finally they got a hold of me and said, look, this is, this is uh, a mistake. Mort will be back in tomorrow. And I go back, meet with Mort. And as I said, we discussed where I should go. And I figured, you know, I, I wasn't really an experienced producer and this was RCA, you know, I better go to Chicago where nobody's going to see what I'm doing, <laughs> make mistakes. You know? So I go to Chicago. And that was my first uh, A&R job, actually, there. And that's where I ended up signing some of the artists that I, I later had hits with. But that's how I ended up in Chicago. Gotcha. Just to stay out of the limelight. That's a smart move. Yeah. And, and luckily, there was an engineer there uh, named Brian Christian. And Brian was doing the Guess Who and Alice Cooper. And there were some big acts coming through Chicago. And he helped me. I mean, you know, I, I never would have gotten these records made without his experience. And I learned a lot from him at that time. And then, funny, funny story, I was over in Cleveland, I think, and I was flying back to the office, and I called in from O'Hare, which I always did, and everybody's shrieking and crying in the background. I go, what's wrong? What happened? And they said, well, Ed Scanlon, who I had met in New York, the head of personnel, had just come in and closed the studios. Well, RCA was signatory to the union, so if you didn't have a union studio, you couldn't produce. So I went, oh, God, this is horrible, because I'd just gotten a new apartment. You know, I got all my furniture. It's Friday night, and I don't know if I have a job. So I figured, I can't wait till Monday. I'll just dial around, and I'll find Ed Scanlon. So I'm dialing around, and, you know, I called the Palmer House, and now Ed Scanlon, no, he's not here, and ended up at the place called the Water Tower. And they said, one moment, please. So I went, bingo. Okay, we got it. So he gets on the phone. Ed Scanlon gets on the phone. I said, Mr. Scanlon, that's David Kirschenbaum. I, I know this is highly unusual, but I really need to speak to you. So they said, okay, fine, come over. So I go over. By now, it's like 9 or 10 o'clock. And I go up to uh, his room. He'd give me the room number. And he opens the door. I'd only seen him once for, you know, 10 minutes, maybe five minutes. And um, he sits on the edge of the bed, and I'm sitting in a chair. And I'm just spilling my guts out to him. I'm saying, hey, you know, Mr. Scanlon, I just got this apartment, and they close the studios, and I don't know if I have a job. And ultimately, I start crying, and it's just a very emotional moment. And I finish, and he's just looking at me. And I went, oh, man, I am so screwed. And he's just looking at me. And finally, he stands up, and he walks over to the end table and grabs a business card and comes over and gives it to me. And it says, Ed Scanlon, shoe distributor, Omaha, Nebraska. <laughs> it was the wrong Ed Scanlon. <laughs> so Monday, I know, I know. And, and so Monday, I see the real Ed Scanlon, and he thought it was so funny, he didn't, didn't let me go. He transferred me to California. 
And that's how I got to California. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay, this really has been a roller coaster ride. Okay, so you're in California, and you're working with all kinds of people all of a sudden. You know, Richie Havens and Cat Stevens and Hoyt Axton, and the, the list really just goes on and on and on. So tell me, I mean, as a producer, I think you sort of have a reputation of a being a real artist's you know, a guy who listens and a guy who tries to figure out what the artist needs instead of putting David's thing on the artist. It's sort of that's how, right. That's yeah. right. So, so how did you figure that out at such a young age? Well, there, there's a number of different kinds of production. And there's what are called enhancement producers, which I was and have been, which is to take the raw materials and figure out how to set the stage and light it and, you know, set the props and all of that. And then there's producers that have basically musicians that have a sound and they drop the artist into that sound. I think that's one of the reasons that I was able and am able to continue for so long is that I don't have a sound. I basically enhance what the artist has and figure out the puzzle. You know, what does it need to present these different things? And I don't know, I, I guess because I wasn't necessarily playing the tracks, it was a necessity to figure out how I was going to present them. And I came up early with the idea and the kind of music that I loved were really great singers who had a message and something to say, but had great vocals. And, and so I would put the vocal in front and work down rather than build the track and add the vocal. And that's what I started doing early on, and that's what I still do today, is I start with the vocal, then add the rhythm underneath it, and then fill in, I say, like, paint by numbers or fill in the blanks. And, and that was the way that I basically approached each production, which were, the music was different, and the needs and the arrangements and musicians and engineers and all that was different, but the idea was the template. And that's what I discovered, luckily, early on and what I used to mistake. One of the things as I'm as I've spent you know this week kind of listening to your catalog and just l looking at it, reading at it, researching it is how many music industry changes you have managed to keep working survive. Yes, yeah, survive. survive is, well, yeah, because the music industry is famous for just discarding people. You know, you were, you're you're a yeah. tissue. You know, we're done with you. And so, even from you know these early singles and the sort of AM radio type of single to making, uh, and I was looking at you know uh, B W Stevenson. Now I have some of his albums, I, uh, partly because he covers uh, a lot of Big Al Anderson songs, and I'm a big fan. Mm -hmm, but, mm -hmm. but one of the things I was thinking about as I was looking at this, there's three B W Stevenson albums between in in 24 months basically and it's like what is happening in the music business that, that that's a good idea i think we did the first bw steven that album in chicago and and then when i was transferred to la i had met a writer uh, daniel moore and he played me a song called shambhala which i loved and i thought it would be great for bw and we ended up recording it and rca released it and it was becoming you know a, a significant hit it was starting to really go up the charts when i got a call from jay lasker's office at abc dunhill and he said you know you have no business recording that song this song belongs to our publishing company and three dog night's going to record this song and we're going to bury you basically <laughs> and that's what happened yeah. and so i had to go back in and get another song and three dog night had the hit with shambhala and i went in with another daniel moore song called my maria and that's the one that became bw's probably his biggest and first hit and it was during this time that we were putting out these different singles and different albums and so forth. And there was no rule about when something had to be released. So we were just making albums as we could get the songs together and releasing them. 
But it is such a crazy time that the that the marketplace and the record companies had the infrastructure for that and the customers were there to to do that as opposed to sometimes today somebody puts out a record every four or five years and may release eight singles from it, you know? Mm-hmm. It different. But remember, there was the California Laurel Canyon singer-songwriter thing going on about that same time. And there were a number of these singers. And luckily, BW had not only the singer-songwriter feel, but also a little bit of a country feel as well. So it fit right in to what was going on. In fact, I think, I'm, I'm sure at one point, Linda Ronstadt actually sang on one or two of the cuts on one of the albums. But it was a, a time really of California cowboy, Western singer-songwriter music, you know, from the Eagles to all the artists that had come up during that time. But back to the question of how did I survive? I was uh, at RCA, I don't know how many years, and ended up going independent. And at that time, an attorney named Abe Summer introduced me to Jerry Moss. And that really changed my whole my whole life, because I started going to A&M. I think the first album I did for A&M was Diamonds and Rust with Joan Baez. And that led me to starting to produce in London. Did, you know, two or three artists in London. The first time I worked with Jeff Emmerich, you know, at Air Studios. And it was just, everything just kind of opened up and it became a whole different possibility because as good as RCA was, A&M and Warner Brothers were the companies during those years. And so, Ultimately, you know, I started going to A&R meetings, even though I wasn't actually on the staff. And one summer, I was in London, and I saw and heard Elvis Costello, My Name is True, and just went crazy. I said, this is the coolest thing I've ever heard. And I had called Jake Riviera, his manager, and asked him if there was ever a possibility to produce Elvis Costello. And then he said, why? He said, you work with Cat Stevens and all this stuff, and you'd never understand Elvis Costello. And so... <laughs> Maybe he was right, you know, so, but I figured, okay, I'm going to find one. So I asked Jerry if I could spend the summer in England looking for this new music that was just starting to really come full bore out of London. And it was great. You know, Dire Straits came out of that summer. We had, got, had signed the police during that summer, uh, Squeeze during that summer. The Eurythmics were playing at a place called the Nashville during that summer. It was a great time, music in London. So I spent two or three months there, but nothing materialized. And at the very end of that time, I was supposed to go home. Jerry said, look, it was a good try, but, you know, it's time to come home. I was going to go home on Monday, and Friday, my last appointment was late, and it was raining, and I thought, "Mm, should I wait? Should I not wait? I ended up waiting, and in comes John Telfer with a tape of Joe Jackson that had, is she really going out with him? You know, all those great songs. And the managing director of A&M, who I was a friend of, but I didn't work at A&M, was out of the country. And so I went to business affairs and said, I love this guy. They said, well, sign him. So we signed Joe Jackson based on my opinion, and I had no authority. They just figured I spoke like an American, and I knew Jerry Moss, so I must have some sort of pull. And we signed Joe Jackson, I was in the studio when the managing director came back, and he called and he said, what is this? How did this happen? And I said, you know, I, I, I like Joe Jackson, and I liked his music, and everybody just said, sign him. So he comes to the studio, and luckily, he loved it as well. And that turned into a really big, big record for A&M, and, and the first moves into new wave music. Hmm. So around that time, Kip Cohen resigned, the head of A&R, and they just figured, well, if he can find Joe Jackson and he's a producer, what else can he do? So I became head of A&R, VP of A&R. And, you know, we had a wonderful run. I had signed uh, Janet Jackson, Brian Adams, 
I'm working with Supertramp. I'm working with Cat Stevens. I'm working with Peter Frampton. You know, it, it was all those great artists uh, at A&M at that time. And so I stayed there for a, a period of time. And I think during that transition period uh, of music, I was inside. You know, I was inside A&M doing all these different kinds of records and, and A&Ring other ones. And it, toward the end of a number of years of doing this, Jerry said, look, you know, I was producing at night and running A&R in the daytime. He said, you know, you're looking pretty beat up. Maybe you better make a decision. Which one do you want to be a producer or do you want to run A&R? And I said, Jerry, I, I really want to stay in A&R. And Joe Jackson called me and said, I need you to help me. And he sent me the songs that were to be the night and day album that had, you know, all those great kind of New York Latin kinds of songs and stepping out on it. So I went to Jerry and I said, Jerry, I, I, I know we, we agreed to do this, but I've just got to do this record. Joe needs me to help him, and I'm just crazy about it. He said, you know, follow your heart, David. Jerry was great. So I did it, and after that, I left that position. And within a couple of weeks, I got a call from Rupert Perry at Capitol, and he said, hey, David, I know you're independent now, and I've got this group, and they're doing so well in the U.K., which I know you're familiar with, and so used to bringing artists from the U.K. over to the U.S. Would you come in and listen and see if there's something you could do to help? So I go into Rupert's office, and, you know, a week or so later, and he puts the thing on his turntable, and it's Duran Duran and Hungry Like the Wolf. And I went, oh, my God, this is great. And it was such a wonderful thing to happen right after I had left, you know, A&M. And we went into the studio. I, you may have known the story, seen the recent publicity in, uh, of Duran Duran's anniversary and film and so forth, because I, I actually met Nick Rhodes again years later uh, during this time period. And we reminisced uh, both in interviews on YouTube and I'm in the film with them about that that particular record. And that led to making other records with them and finishing a, a number of sides, which came out, I think, as an EP and then ultimately became the album. But after that time, between the Joe Jackson Night and Day and, and the uh, Duran Duran record, I was on a real roll. So I was able to roll through uh, a number of uh, different years until I got a call from Don Rubin at SBK, which was Charles Koppelman's company. And Don said, look, I know you'd love singer-songwriters, and you've done singer-songwriters, and we've got one that we really believe in. She's not signed to anybody, but we're going to front the record from the publishing company. Would you come to New York and me? And I said, yeah, if you, if you believe in it. And he sent me a tape, and I listened to it, and it was really good. I wasn't sure I heard a hit single, but wow, it was really good. So I go to New York, and the artist is Tracy Chapman. And I'm sitting in the conference room and at SBK, and I met Tracy. She's just lovely, wonderful, wonderful person, as well as great artist. And during that time, she played me. She said, I got a new song, and she played me Fast Car, which wasn't on the demo tape. And so we hit it off, and she ended up coming to California, and, and I had a studio in L.A. at that time. And we made that that first record. So there was another milestone that kind of propelled me, you know, for another period of time. But it was just really fortunate that I was able to work with great artists and had great opportunities and, and honestly luck, you know, uh, being able to uh, uh, perpetuate myself, you know, for that many years. A lot to unpack there. Let me back you up just a, a couple things. Somebody like Joan Baez, she's, you know, so established and has such a almost like a reputation to protect. How do you reassure her young guy, you know, within the first two minutes that I'm not going to screw up your thing and I'm the guy for you? 
Uh, well, Jerry uh, assured her, you know, and gave her uh, a bit of confidence. I had met with her and her manager, Bernie Gill, uh, more than a couple of times. And we hit it off. You know, Joan is, gosh, what a lovely person she is and, and smart and articulate. And I don't know, we, we hit it off. It was, it was fortunate that she wanted to do something more commercial at that point. So it wasn't a case of me telling her, you know, let's cover a Jackson Brown song and let's do this and, and do that. She she wanted to actually make this transition. And I think because of maybe B.W. Stevenson or whatever it was, she felt like I could actually help her do that. But, you know, I, I was pretty green. You know, I was still getting my my chops, you know, in the studio. And I remember going into the studio and I had, it was A&M, and I had a guy named Larry Carlton, who you may be familiar with, who's a wonderful guitar player as the band leader. And there was uh, Jim Gordon and, gosh, I think Duck Dunn. There was a number of great studio musicians there who could play basically anything and play it really quick. And Joan was in the vocal booth. And I remember going into the vocal booth, because remember, I, I hadn't done that much live recording, live vocals, and saying to Joan, you know, hey, Joan, uh, the guys are really going to be able to play this. They all have charts. It's not going to take many takes. So they'll get it. But, you know, if you if, if you want to go back and fix something or if you want to do it again, it's no problem. We can go back and get it later. And she says, no, 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 you don't get it. You know, I'm going to sing it. I'm going to sing it perfectly. <laughs> you better get it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was just frozen, you know, I went, oh my gosh. But she was right. She did most of those vocals, as were Tracy's, were live vocals gotcha. that were just brilliant because she was such a great singer. And luckily we had great equipment and, and a good engineer and we caught all of it. But uh, it was a real it was a real lesson because I hadn't gotten to Tracy yet and I hadn't really done that much uh, with live vocal recording uh, at that point. Yeah, great way to make a record. So you mentioned Jim Gordon. Um, obviously, guy had some real problems later on, but uh, an amazing yeah. drummer plays on so many great records. Yes, there was such a great uh, pocket of of LA musicians to pick from. But any any inkling about how crazy Jim Gordon was? Yeah, but I, I'm not going to go into that part. I, I as a person, uh, you know, Jim had some some serious problems, and and we. Uh, we, I think we ended up doing From Every Stage, which was a live double album with Joan that Jim was on tour with. And that, that's where I noticed some uh, of those kinds of things going on. But as a drummer, he was just unbeatable. He oh, was unbelievable. So yeah, so good. Yeah, so good. Uh, so let's go to Joe, Joe Jackson. Uh, you mentioned that you sort of heard Elvis Costello and that kind of turned the light bulb on for you a little bit. Was that literally the first thing that had you see the next thing coming? It was. I was at Air Studios in London, and I remember one of the young guys, the second engineer, says, hey, you've got to hear this. Because there was advertising in the London uh, music press at that time, and they said there are two great Elvises. One is dead, and one is Elvis Costello. Yeah. That was the ad. And uh, it caught my attention, and they were talking about this music, and we put it on, and I, I think Allison was the first song I heard. I just couldn't believe it. It was so cool. But... You know, everything, every place you look, there was new, great music coming out of London. And, you know, it hadn't reached the U.S. So I, luckily I was over there and heard it early on and was able to become a part of it and bring it over here. 1985 to 88, CDs start outselling vinyl. Do you remember when CDs became part of the equation? And, and how did that affect your job and the just what was happening inside the record companies? 
I remember it exactly. You know, those, I remember really, I think I was in Amsterdam with Joe Jackson doing something. And I heard the first CD, which was a Dire Straits CD. And I can't remember who had produced this, not, not, not musically produced, but technically produced it. But it was one of the first CDs. And I was amazed at the uh, quality. Not necessarily like analog, because I love analog. And digital never has surpassed analog. But the clarity and the dynamic range of it was, was astounding. And the thing that impressed me most is that in the past, you know, if you wanted to compare what you were doing in the studio to something, like particularly when you're mixing, to something else, you would play the record and you'd play what you were playing. And, you know, there's obviously a difference in what the original was to what ends up on vinyl, because vinyl does lose a touch when it's actually manufactured. But it, I think it makes up for it in warmth and size and so forth. But anyway, CDs allowed you to compare almost to the master what was done. And when you heard them in the studio, on studio, big studio monitors, it was magnificent. You went, wow, this is really something. From a financial standpoint, it was a goldmine. The record business had been suffering and suffering financially as an industry. And all of a sudden, you could re-release all your catalog on CD. And many, many, many people would duplicate what they already bought on analog. And so it was a, it was a windfall for the record labels. Quality-wise, it created a whole other ability to, to hear and listen. And of course, digital music hadn't hit the internet yet. But as it did, you could never send records around on the internet. But it opened up the possibility of being able to send music around on the internet, change distribution forever. Uh, record stores became passe, and ultimately, as we know, it became streaming, which is uh, absolutely huge. I mean, it's just the biggest thing out there right now. Those were some crazy, notorious, there's so many books about how crazy the record business got during that time. And I haven't really seen too much about David Kirschenbaum was a crazy person, you know, on the internet. Did that just the money, the craziness, did that get to you, or were you just busy working? I think all of us were uh, a bit uh, left of center during those days, and even inside the record companies. But I was always more interested in and fascinated by what I could work on and create. So I was good to myself, you know, and, and even though, you know, like everyone else during that time period, I had my moments, I wasn't self-destructive. And so I tried to keep as much consciousness as I could muster in, the, in those days so I could continue to work because I was working nonstop. And I had at one point two recording studios, but I had one that were, we were going all the time around the clock. And then I ultimately owned a studio called Studio 55, which was one of the big commercial studios with six rooms. And we were doing multiple projects and I was co-producing things and overseeing things and we were doing soundtracks all these different things. And so I had to really be on my game. And to me, that was more fun than getting screwed up and, you know, staying out all night, you know. Yeah, I gotcha. You, you mentioned Tracy Chapman, Fast Car. The debut album sold, I think, 17 million records, something like that. Can you explain to us, I mean, I don't want to get into your personal thing, but how does record producing pay? Is it a royalty? Is it a fee? Is it, you know, is it something it's that's... It, yeah, it's both. It's both. Record producers get paid two different ways. One is they get an advance on the, on the work that they do, which can be recoupable out of, uh, you know, as an expense before you start getting paid later or non-recoupable in the case of 
larger, uh, bigger producers that are more established. So you get an advance, and then you, in those days, you would get a percentage production royalty against sales. And that went on all the way to streaming. And then streaming became a whole different animal. But you still, there was still a ratio that they used uh, that would be uh, kind of commensurate with what the production percentage would be on sales uh, for streaming. But there's, there's two ways record producers get paid. They get paid in advance, and then they get paid a royalty in perpetuity for the life of the record in all configurations. That's pretty pretty nice. I mean, I, it must be fun just to like, because you never know when something's going to resurface or be a hit. I mean, did you know, for instance, you know, Fast Car, you said you sat in the room, you heard her play the song with one guitar. Did you just know right right away? Well, you never know. If you know right away 100%, of course, you'd be the richest man on earth or richest woman on earth. But I knew it was special. And, you know, I'm all about emotion. And I really feel and always subscribe to the fact that if you can move people to something, they'll never forget it. They'll remember, you know, even to the degree of where they were and who they were with when they first heard it. And that's what happened with Fast Car to this day. You know, 30-something years later, people will say, I remember exactly where I was when I heard Fast Car. See, I think that, I, to me, I think that people have learned to repress their feelings and emotions and to be appropriate. You know, don't, you know, Stiff upper lip, you know, don't really display what's really going on inside. But how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing great, you know, no matter what's going on. But I think country music really hit it on the head because they were able to, country artists were able to get lyrics and stories that people could sit there, you know, and relate to, you know, maybe drinking a beer in a bar and saying, you know what? I had the same thing happen to me. I can really relate to that. Or un- unable to express that feeling would uh, give that song to someone else and say, listen to that. That's us. You know, those kinds of things. And what I thought about Tracy's music was that she was heartfelt. She came from a, a wonderful, true and honest place. And that if heard, people would, uh, would really resonate with her songs and with her music. But I remember playing the record for the record company for the first time, and uh, which was Electra later, not SPK, who actually helped me uh, by financing the thing. And they said, look, this is really great. You know, it's, it's great. We're going to work, Tracy, and, you know, maybe we sell 50000 100000 of this first one. And then, you know, we'll keep building, keep building. Well, no one knew. It was a different time period. And thankfully, Charles Kaufman, uh, who believed in this and actually came up to bat and paid for it, was largely responsible for the promotion of getting this thing started. And once it got in front of people, it worked. But, you know, had that not been promoted correctly or put out there correctly, uh, we also had a break in London when it first was released that Tracy was doing the Nelson Mandela broadcast. And somebody, or she wasn't on, but somebody didn't show up. And so she was in the wings with her acoustic guitar and she went out and played, you know, on that broadcast and in front of all those, I don't know how many thousands of people. And within the next uh, week, the record went almost number one on the British chart. So, I mean, we had some breaks along the way, but ultimately with any record, it's got to perform and resonate. And I think that records like this record that are really special, that really have moving moments, can really connect with people, but they're some of the time the hardest records to get in front of people because it wasn't necessarily an AM hit. I mean, uh, Pascar, the chorus, 
didn't come for years. I mean, it was so far <laughs> into the song, you know. And I, I remember the record company asking me to edit it. And I spent two weeks and, you know, I finally said, look, it can't be edited. Either, you know, put it out like this or don't. But it's not, it can't be edited. You can't edit Fast Car. You'd lose so much by cutting a verse out or something. I imagine it must be frustrating at some point that you make the record, you you get as many of those things right as you can, and then it's out of your hands. And in, to some degree, it's up to some marketing people who do or don't get it or have another priority that quarter or whatever it is. It's true. And uh, record companies have priorities. There's no doubt about it. And, and again, in those days, there was really only one medium until MTV, and that was radio. And the major labels controlled distribution, and they had the biggest uh, budgets for promotion and radio uh, promotion and independence and all the things that happened around the uh, the promoting of records. It was better when I was in A and M because you know it was all a team, and we could all kind of talk about what uh, uh, needed to be done. And of course, Gary and Herb would put certain priorities on things uh, themselves that they really believed in. So it was, it was a little different than just submitting a, a finished record to a record company and crossing your fingers and hoping for the best that it got the promotion. But, you know, radio in those days only had so many slots every week for new music. So you couldn't control it if three or four major artists released at the same time from other labels. I mean, there was just nothing you could do. But certainly having a priority and having the promotion department, which were the guys were nationwide and they were very powerful working in unison to make something successful made the huge difference and to this day obviously there's many records that should have been hits that just for whatever reason didn't see the light of day you know whether it didn't have the priority or you know madonna those days released a new record or you know whatever it was took up those slots and so it was twofold you had to get it right in the studio hopefully your songs were the right ones and you're releasing the right single and many times you release a single and the record the radio stations would turn it over and play the b-side which became a hit uh you know so who knew you know you just had to use your best judgment but so much of it was gut and that's what's different Mm -hmm. i think today is that it's much more scientific and technical you know what goes on yeah, I think so. Uh, real quick, is going to the Grammys fun? If you win, it's really fun. <laughs> if you don't, it's not so much fun. But, you oh. know, it's, it, what people don't realize is that when you're there, it, it's not continuous. There's a lot of stopping and starting, you know, resetting up the stage, cutting away the commercials and so forth. But, you know, the thing that I think I loved about the Grammys and still do is that it was a time for the whole business to come together and everyone to kind of celebrate the best of the best and and all those artists you know playing and performing it was exciting from that standpoint and it got it gave you a chance to really get a barometer of the whole year and see you know the the records that made it sometimes the ones you thought should have didn't you know from or records didn't win awards it should have and sometimes you know the ones that you thought were going to win were the winners but it was more than just winning or losing it was a chance to see in one setting the whole a picture of the whole year. And I, I love that. I thought that was fascinating. Yeah. DavidKirschenbaum.com is the place where you can sort of see the rest of the iceberg because we're really just talking about the tip of the iceberg today. I mean, there's so, your career is just so huge, so multifaceted. And I just love that it sort of sounds like you've just kind of followed your gut the whole way. It doesn't seem like you're... Totally. Yeah. It's amazing. Um, yeah, totally. So tell me, what are you doing these days? What, like this week, what are you doing? 
Well, you know, uh, when the when the virus hit, first of all, there was a time when I was not doing any music at all. I had uh, kind of gotten out of it. I was disenchanted with what was going on musically and uh, went up north and bred horses. You know, that's, that's basically what I was doing in those days. And then I started getting uh, calls to start doing things again. And, and I did. I started producing, you know, artists and even new artists and, and, and uh, attached artists to labels. And, but the question that always came up it was, well, what do we do with this once, once it's done? How, well, how do we promote it? What do we do? Well, you know, now artists can really do a lot of it themselves. There's streaming. There's all kinds of marketing things that can be done. Uh, some of the distributors that were only uh, basically aggregators that would place things on, you know, Apple and all YouTube, all these different places, also now have promotion functions, marketing functions, and, and playlist promotion and all that kind of thing that didn't exist before. So during the virus, it became almost impossible to work in studios. And I was still working on different things because, you know, they just had to close. You just couldn't go there. So I did what I said I would never do again. I built a studio in my house put in some SSL equipment and some analog equipment and Pro Tools and all of those kind of things. And technology changed again at that point because you couldn't go to studios. So almost everybody was working uh, on their own systems. And there's a plug-in that came out that I started using called Audio Movers, which is now owned by Abbey Road. And basically, you could put that plug-in at the end of the chain in Pro Tools and send a link to someone else, and they could hear in real time what you were doing in your studio. And then with Zoom, you could actually see and talk to each other. And I started producing all things all over the world. I'd have guitar players in Brazil and someone else in London, and I would do these records one instrument at a time on uh, these different systems and then put it all together in my system and mix it. And that's basically what I've been doing. You know, I do it constantly and kind of nonstop. And it's, I assume it's fun. I assume that's the main reason you're doing it. It's the only reason I'm doing it because I, I really don't really need to be producing at this point, but I, I miss it. You know, it's, it, I enjoy it. I enjoy the technology. Luckily, I was as much into the technology as the music, and I was one of the first to use Pro Tools. And I'm fascinated by the continuing onslaught of things that come out that make it easier to make records. You know, when I started, if you wanted ambience, you pull the mic out in the roof away from the amplifier. <laughs> there, were, there was nothing digital, and you had live chambers, but, there, you know, there were no effects or anything. Today, it's, just, it's crazy. I mean, the things that you can do and the emulations of uh, analog gear. So as much as I enjoy producing, and I do, and I enjoy uh, young artists and music. I enjoy what's happening with the technology just as much and, and love listening to and trying out all these different things. My only, I guess, um, regret is that people coming up today didn't get the uh, education and the experience in a studio with live musicians and needing to do things uh without the aid of plugins and presets and all those kinds of things. So many times, you know, you can just put a bunch of presets on something and make it sound pretty decent, but have no idea what it's doing and why. And, uh, and I think that's a little bit regrettable. But nevertheless, I love all the things that happen and, and with the technology. And every day, something new is coming out to try. And you go, oh, wow, what would it sound like if I put that on this and tried that on that? And uh, it, it's been really fun and rewarding for me. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's end this by going back to 1979 to look sharper. I was 15 when it came out. I still have 
the copy that I bought uh, back then. I also have the two ten inch, two ten inch record copy that I bought, and a bunch of you know singles. It's still a record that totally stands the test of time. Is there a song you want to hear from this record? Oh gosh, there were three or four. I mean, I loved all the songs on the record, but uh, I, I loved "Got the Time." Um, Sunday Papers. I, of course, is she really going out with him was the main reason for doing it. But Sunday Papers. I love because of Graham's bass playing, mm. you know, and we've had so many comments on Graham, uh, maybe, and his bass playing, and that particular song uh, really excelled. You know, Look Sharp was made, I think, in two weeks at Eden Studios in London, and we were making, uh, ironically, Look Sharp from 10 to 1, I think, in the morning, and Elvis Costello came in and did Armed Forces after that in the same studio, basically with the same mics and so forth. But Look Sharp was not contrived. I mean, it, there was a lot of live playing and uh, a lot of live performance on that record. And I think that the musicians uh, in that group were phenomenal. But particularly if I had to pick a cut, it would be Sunday Papers and Graham's performance, as well as Joe's, obviously, on bass on that particular song. Yeah, I agree. His bass playing is so unlike anything that was happening, especially happening on the radio at that time. So tell me what, I mean, when we hear Sunday Papers, are we hearing 100% live? Are the vocals redone? What What's going on? The band was live. Um, hmm. The band we, we recorded live. I don't think we did a lot of comping. By comping, I mean taking uh, multiple takes with Joe. We did some. But most of it was, was live because it had to be. You know, we made it in two weeks, and we made it in the morning. So it, would, it, we just, it just went down. You know, it was very, very fast and furious. And I think it shows because the record has a certain live energy to it that if we'd been, you know, microscopic going through all the parts, it never would have sounded like that. Yeah, it's funny because my teenage daughter loves this record, too. It it definitely survives. Well, uh, David Kirschenbaum, thank you so much. Folks can find out all about you, I suppose. Contact you at davidkirschenbaum.com. Uh, look at what you're yep. doing and what you've done. And uh, it's... I just—it's an incredible ride that still goes on, you know. From a a single in 1965 to today, you're still 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 making music. That's that's incredible. If anybody has it, let me know. I'd love to buy it. I'm going to get them all out of the market. <laughs> but really, thank you so much. It's really been fun speaking with you on this whole thing and bringing back these memories, uh, which were really fantastic. I'm very fortunate and very blessed to have had the opportunity to live this and do this in my life. No, our pleasure. Thank you. Wonderful, wonderful story. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.
Position. <laughs> 